This is Frameform. Hey, welcome back to Frameform. Today we're launching a new episode series where rather than a specific location or film, we will be exploring how specific genres of dance intersect with cinema and technology. Ballet originated as a combination of choreographic display and social dance, and we have seen this evolve as our capacities to both choreograph and be social expand. Like a ballet you may see in the theater, we're going to split today's show into acts. In Act 1, we'll talk about a range of examples of ballet on screen, from mainstream to experimental. In Act 2, we'll focus on how ballet has been and continues to be used as a tool that goes beyond pure entertainment. I thought it would be fun if we could start with a brainstorm of typical tropes that we've seen for ballet on screen, from commercials to feature films, animation, everything in between. So, Hannah... Claire, what do you think of when I say ballet or when I say ballet and media? I think the first thing, the first thing that comes to mind actually is my ballet teacher (laughs) who was actually from Ukraine. Hi, Miss Nella. I don't think you're listening, but uh, no, but she was awesome. And that's the first thing I think of. And also uh, tuck your tummy or no, tuck your tushy and Hold your arm a certain way. <laughs> Flower fingers. Um, everything is coming at me all at once. I love that. My first ballet teacher was also Ukrainian. Um, I had Miss Olga and Miss Victoria. Don't know if we can say that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's all it's all completely flying back um I mean honestly whenever I think ballet I immediately get transported to um I guess the stereotypical ballet scene of a very very dimly lit kind of bluish tinged scene with lots of dancers usually dressed in white and dancing to Tchaikovsky of some kind can't you be more specific Claire Let's see which one are we talking about Swan Lake are we talking about <laughs> Waltz of the Snowflakes are we talking about some Sleeping Beauty Scheherazade. or by a dare yeah Scheherazade La Silphied La Silphied because they're different you know <laughs> oh yeah they are different and maybe one of them I don't know if one controversial take I don't know if one of them should really be performed anymore but Ooh. that's for another episode <laughs> <laughs> But usually, like, when we think of dance, or at least when North American culture thinks of dance, usually the image that comes to mind is that of a ballerina, as if that is sort of like the default signifier for dance in our culture. And I think it's safe to say as far as dance forms go, ballet tends to be the most widespread it tends to be the most funded it tends to um and in that I mean like of all the dance companies that you might see in your area the ballet company probably has a bigger budget and because of that we do see a lot of ballet on film and especially with the advent of the last few years we're seeing even more ballet on film um in place of live performances I believe a big part of this was the COVID boom fact that a lot of these long established ballet companies that were perhaps holding on to this tradition of live performance and, 
you know, needing to sell tickets and needing to fill seats because they're at the Paris Opera or whatever large venue, which is their company's residence and this great tradition, there was some hesitation, certainly not from companies such as um, Scottish National Ballet, who've been working with Jess and Morg's films for years, making some of her most um, memorable. I definitely still love Curing Albrecht a lot, but I definitely think COVID made that shift. And now we're seeing screen dance and ballet combine in very much in the mainstream, like we saw decades ago where ballet was that gateway genre for the general public to see dance. Yeah, I would say also prior to COVID, I mean, ballet is one of the early beginnings of dance documentation that was being shown to the general public, whether that be through PBS or your local library on VHS, which was what I grew up on, as well as we could say also the musicals that we all grew up with, The Red Shoes, An American in Paris, Singing in the Rain, all of those. And as well as the part in the 80s and 90s where we got Turning Point and Center Stage, which, and fame as well. And all of those are uh, depictions of what the life of a dancer, you know, a ballet dancer because they didn't really talk about modern dance or tap dance. They had, we saw tap dancers. We knew about modern dancers, but everybody was more fascinated with what the life of a ballerina was like because of all the things that go in it, whether that be what their routine is like, what their diet is like, what they're doing when they're not dancing it's a whole it's a whole fascination that the public puts in their head and kind of puts it on a pedestal which I don't really like I don't know how you guys feel about that I think uh, Black Swan is a really great recent example that yeah kind of looked at the dark side of ballet and the, the the psychological effects of perfectionism and her disordered eating as well um definitely I think nowadays ballet does have this you know not to reference Swan Lake again but ballet does have this duality where there is this uh innocent uh often girlish very naive side that we see but then there's also the dark side of how rigorous of a profession this is and as we'll talk about in the second act sometimes ballet truly is um grueling and the stakes can be quite high um, something I didn't mention in our trope listing that I have to mention here is the obligatory point shoe prep and the foot gore. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, we always see... Yeah, Center Stage does a great example of this, and I also really love it in Ingrid Silva, especially because we see her, um, you know, changing the color of her shoes to match her skin tone, which, thankfully, shoes are now and tights are now available in a variety of tones, but... You know, that whole, um, like you said, Hannah, like being in the, in the rhythm of the day and mm-hmm. ballet is so much about discipline and routine that we are very familiar. Even if people have never taken a ballet class, chances are if you've seen ballet on screen, you're familiar with the tropes that are on and off stage. And something about um, the nature of ballet on film, I think is very much influenced uh, as by Hannah, what you said with some of the films that you mentioned, like The Red Shoes, like A Turning Point, like Center Stage, 
that usually have like an extended dance dream sequence. And so the it's almost like the ballet performance itself, um, even if it, the film itself is about ballet and it is about that preparation, it feels like the ballet performance itself is seen as that kind of escape and seen as this kind of alternate reality and almost like an excuse to become ungrounded. And I think that that informs a lot of what we see, not only within dance and popular media, but also within some of the screen dances that we see in ballet. We do tend to see like dancers acting out very fantastical ideas and usually a representation of fantastical ideas with the camera documenting those ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, ballet has always spoken in the languages of dreams and fairy tales and folklore. And it's interesting how now, as cultures are blending and technology connects us, what the idea of dreaming and a fairy tale looks like. And sometimes that can just manifest in an unexpected combination or some new perspective that we have on ballet, whether it's the way it's captured or the choreography, the concept, the setting. Uh, And definitely in today's show notes, you'll see a plethora of examples that just show what that range I'm referring to is. With these films, I feel like as we talk about the fantastical element to them, but then there's the underlining of the discipline. Ballet is that part where the dancer is actually running away in a way. Like they're in their mind, they're in their brain, they're actually living in the moment and being very aware of what is going on and how fun it is to move and what dance can bring to the body and mind and the spirit of the performance, the way it's even just how we present ourselves on stage. There is this attention-seeking element to it, but yet is also blinding in a way with all those lights bringing us to a new height of emotion and I definitely noticed that in all those films as well as uh, films that come from a ballet background that aren't depicted in a ballet way uh, there was a film a while back what is it Jen um, the and Claire the film where it's in the rain and there's just crazy uh, colored lights and there's the stop. a stop. Lujmila Komrakova. Right. The stop. That's a great example of shout out. Love you. Ballet shown on in a different way with those exaggerated moments of question and curiosity. And yet it takes a whole different spin in the other way, which I think is what we always see in these staged performances of dance. So just for the record, yes, the stop is amazing. Love it. Linked in the show notes. Um, But the stop is, I don't know what particular genre, but it is ballroom dance. But I think why you're remembering it as ballet is just because it's so graceful. And it basically is a pas de deux. And it is this, yeah. this tormented romance. And instead of princes and swords, you got a gun and you got this old guy with a bouquet. It definitely, it has ballet elements. And like, you would you would see that on a staged proscenium floor. I mean, with all ballet performances that we've seen, there's also hints of ballroom in that. And they all stem kind of together in the same way. For sure. Those those 
literally ballet came from the courts and came from mm-hmm. the same place that these traditional uh, partner and folk dances came from. So definitely there's that shared lineage that's important to pick up on when you're looking at these forms. Yeah. And it's also interesting to see artists that like to deconstruct these forms or deconstruct what these, either deconstruct what these uh, expectations are or in a way hyper enhance what these expectations are. And I think honestly no film does that better than, you know, the the patron saint of Canadian experimental film, Norman McLaren. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, Norman. <laughs> yes. I mean, pas de deux is, I mean, anytime I do a workshop and specifically if I'm doing a workshop for ballet, like that is the film I will show first. It is the Citizen Kane of screen dance. <laughs> it like, is. Pretty much. I think that or Maya Darren, like I, it's a, it's up there. Maya Darren, I would say Maya yeah. Darren is more uh, needed in your vocabulary before Norman McLaren. But yes, it's definitely up there. And Pada does essential. It's in the canon. It's it's in like the top, I would literally say top five. Maybe I have Canadian bias. I don't know. Top five to ten main examples that come up regardless of what the topic is almost. It's just such a great example of experimentation, but government funded and in the mainstream released on national film board um onf and still extremely timeless like sometimes when you experiment with technology things look so dated and that can be really great (laughs) it can be really campy it can also just be uh purposeful or good as documentation but potage has this timeless value of literally helping the viewer understand ballet and movement like they wouldn't have without that manipulation. Exactly. Exactly. It's such a great entry point for people who may not know about experimental film or dancers who may not know about experimental film and just showing them something. Yeah. As you just said, that they have familiarity with it at with and then stretching that expectation. It's literally using the form to teach you about the form rather than being entertainment or just something cool to watch. I believe that by watching it, you can understand music, you can understand shape, you can understand ballet, editing, all of those things better. And I don't think I'm overhyping this. Like, I apparently overhyped West Side Story. (laughs) That's good. And it, I mean, just the time it takes, too. In a way, it helps condition you to, like, be with the film and just get to understand, like, really dig into the world of the film rather than, like, kind of put that psychological proscenium idea of here is the audience, here is the the performance. With all these films that we're talking about, I want to bring us back to what I was saying earlier about how ballet has, for years, shown their work on video platforms such as PBS or on VHS and distributing it out to your libraries. Staging dance documentations is a huge thing that I was seeing growing up. And I think that plays a large part in how we're watching ballet dance on film. We have all of those performances that we have just laid out for you that are available. And it's interesting how you have so many cameras for just one performance and you feel like you're getting the whole thing and yet you're getting that focused mediated 
experience of like who you should be watching during certain parts. You get the artistic director whispering in your ear, telling you who to follow. <laughs> Claire, uh, you actually do this work for a living. Indeed. What is that like just doing the whole, I mean, how many cameras are you working with when recording these performances? Uh, what's the editing process like? Well, most of the time, actually, with ballet performances, and especially with the major ballet company in San Francisco that I will not name, but you can probably draw the dots pretty easily if you're listening to this, um, I usually do single camera archival documentation. So, but that comes with its own, um, its its own tricks. Um, First of all, single camera documentation does not mean a fixed wide. Um, that means usually following, zooming in on everyone who is on stage at a particular time and then following whoever is on stage. Now, in some cases, like with some of the major ballet companies, we'll uh, establish the core and we will zoom in on the soloist or we'll zoom in like on a pas de deux that's moving around. And most of the time, full body and frame, all times. Um, preservation of that choreography at all times. Even if we're doing a multicam documentation, even if we do like, let's say we'll have like one close up and one wide, the close up is still full body. Um, Very rarely will we go in to a half body or uh, a mid shot with with ballet because a lot of the mentality is, you know, you want to preserve what happened. You want to preserve the choreography as it existed in space time. And I think a lot of people who are just getting into the dance film sphere from ballet have experience not only with watching things like dance documentation on a television network, but through watching videos to to learn rep, because that's primarily how they're learning. Like, you know, they can't send repeteurs to every single company. Sometimes you just have to take a video and learn from it. And that's how you learn or internalize what dance on video is supposed to be. Fond memories of VHSs in the studio <laughs> yes. from a very young age. I actually, I really miss those days. Now video is just used as a substitute for remembering any sort of choreography between classes. Exactly. <laughs> so Claire, from your experience, I want to touch on also like what other films that we have seen through this Green Dance Festival field. And one film I want to touch on is Ben Estabrook, uh, his film, Laurencia. He literally taught the very first production class I took at San Francisco Dance Film Festival. I think I mentioned that in our intermission episode, but everything I know about documentation, I learned from Ben. And if you want a show documented, you best call up Ben. Well, his film, Laurencia, I think also definitely showcases that dance documentation that he's so good at um in this work actually it's a I would say if I were watching it back in my screen dance collective day I'd be like this is just dance documentation but with my seasoned eye now uh, (laughs) I feel like this work is a great uh experimentation on what you're watching when watching dance documentation but also kind of taking it to the next level. Um, And I've also have done dance documentation when I was in graduate school. And that was like how I would make an extra 
$5. (laughs) And it's so funny to look at it in a specific way where, yes, you're supposed to capture the whole body to, you know, if this was to be restaged, you want the whole body. But then in this film that Ben has done, taking it to the next level by going a little bit closer to the dancer, you don't really see that in any kind of dance documentation or even in as staged works that are you don't get as close as the as the waist up or even to the face at times maybe in the movie like turning point or in center stage but when you're watching this as purely for a reality experience this definitely takes it to the next level and I love how it just finishes with that exhale and you see the dancer totally in it, their own zone. Like that's the one thing that we never see in any kind of work or even when we're watching these works in the audience. I mean, they're going out to the ends. Maybe sometimes you'll get those dancers that if you can see them, they can see you scenario and you're watching them like, basically try to catch a breath while they're off stage but I I did enjoy that for a piece where the dancer is wearing a costume and in a very formal kind of matter but then we see her in a very informal kind of matter which is why it's on the credit section because it's just another commentary of its own and that's why context is so important because I agree with you if I had just seen this without understanding that ballet typically is shot in a full frame and is not segmenting the body even to do a close-up of the face for an exhale and a smile at the end I might just say okay it's a video of a live performance right but this is the importance of actually learning about and talking about these on on a new level and that's where screen dance is so amazing because it completely blows open our perspective on how we watch ballet and how we watch dance and you know, we've talked about drones and we've talked about dancing in deserts and empty pools and all sorts of different ways that screen dance helps us see dance in a new way. And of course, ballet is part of that. So out of our, I would say they're experimental in a sense, like our short experimental screen dances, which are some that really stand out to you. I mean, they're all listed in the show notes, but Hannah and Claire, out of our list that we have there, are there any that you want to kind of dive into more? Well, I just want to shout out Jess and Morgs for a moment. Um, they're always a delight to watch whenever you're doing screening for festivals. Um, I mean, one, they stand out because they are very lighthearted and they do make you laugh, which that does not describe a lot of <laughs> screen dance films. But there really is sort of like a tongue-in-cheek, um, like wink-wink, nudge-nudge to sort of the ridiculous, almost like acknowledging the ridiculousness of the the package of ballet in these very fantastical stories, and then taking that absurdity to a 10. And there's so much play within it, and there's so, in a way, there's so much agency from the performers in it that you almost don't see in ballet. And that almost that sense of agency is a deconstruction within itself as well. That's so well put. I would also, Jen, you wrote down, or someone wrote down uh, Hong Hong Kong Ballet, and I've also very much appreciated their work. I think their body of dances show excitement and fun and playfulness, which I 
love that. I think ballet shouldn't be serious all the time. And they definitely go the extra mile with that in their work. It's colorful. It's cheeky. It's fun. It's fun. Ballet should be fun. It's not all about the elegance. And they've also kind of, in a way, deconstructed the idea of like of what a promo video should be, too. Because their promo videos are works of art. Yeah. And obviously they're created with commercial intentions in mind, but they're very much thought out and they play with the form. And they, I mean, they are a part of the season. They're not just advertising the season. I agree. And another company that has really, to me, revolutionized ballet and how we perceive it and how we consume it is L.A. Dance Project and Benjamin Milpier. Um, I've followed them for a long time and, you know, had the privilege of seeing them live a few times. And actually, I went to high school with one of the company members, which was super random because she was a bit older than me and we didn't keep in touch. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm pretty sure that's Steph Amaral on stage. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Random. But um, L.A. Dance Project, I mean, Milpier's choreography is gorgeous. And then add his his business vision, his artistic vision, and how he just made contemporary ballet cool and more authentic with real life, and but at the same time very stylized, almost like this um, editorial magazine aesthetic for ballet. And he's come a long way since choreographing the Bailey's Nutcracker. I mean, I love that ad as much as anybody else, I think, maybe even more, but it's really cool to see how that's a perfect example of do the commercial thing get the notoriety he was also the choreographer for black swan and that's also how we met natalie portman fun fact his wife but then you can expand and do the extremely creative thing both with the artistic product but also the business model yeah i mean it's so great so amazing to see that um well first of all west coast companies putting (laughs) putting ballet on the map uh it's not just you know it doesn't just belong to the new york dance and critical establishment but yeah, they've been doing some amazing work over the years, too. Well, with all this West Coast dance, we also have to say something about Waltz of the Snowflakes by Post Ballet, Robin Deckers. I mean, Berkeley Ballet Theater, shout out to them. They're doing great. I think their version of Waltz of the Snowflakes on a naval base, uh, definitely very different. Definitely, you can tell when it was taking place. Uh, I have to say with this one, I mean, it is a version of dance documentation with that staged presence, as I was saying, where there's a mediation between what you should be watching versus the whole screen, the whole wide perceived space. I think with this piece, what I liked about it was we did not see a typical waltz of the snowflakes here. We saw all kinds of people and not just women in point shoes. We saw sneakers. We saw men, women, others on the stage, which I really appreciated. And we saw a different kind of flavor of that work through the movement. I agree. The movement was gorgeous and all the movers, the variety. I think it was a really beautiful reimagining of things. It was definitely a weird visual irony with like the dry landscape and the idea that they're supposed to be snowflakes, but nevertheless, it was still cool to watch. I honestly did not love the sneakers, though. I wish that there was some sort of custom, like, ballet flat or something that would have been less chunky that they could have used. I get that, like, it kind of gave me the Cinderella story 
vibe mm. where it's like I'm wearing my prom dress with Converse. I'm cool. And I know that's not what they were going for, but just visually I can't break away those two from each other. Would you be okay with Keds? No. I feel like Keds are dainty enough. Yeezys, kidding. No. Um I I think like an actual stretchy ballet flat like new take on ballet shoes to me would have looked better, but I'm nitpicking. It was gorgeous. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, based on what um, what's on the market, the um actually the shoes, I know this cuz I I know people who are in this. They're um actually martial arts shoes. So they have like um oh, Yeah, they've a flexible. I mean, they're more flexible, but I mean, they're still sneakers. They're still like it's still, you know, maybe cuts off the line if you're looking at that. But a lot of what Robin's interested in is sort of getting ballet more grounded and sort of reinterpreting yeah. ballet and have it be more relevant for the audience that it's um, that it's serving. And this was the first time I've actually seen something that would be like a California relevant version of Waltz of the Snowflakes. <laughs> because yeah. the holidays on the West Coast, specifically, specifically if you're on the coast, I mean, we have the Sierra Nevada. We do have great skiing. That's like a three-hour drive away. But if you're on the coast, it's very dry. Maybe you might see snow on the mountains around the San Francisco area like once a year. So the holidays are always like a very big cognitive dissonance as far as like a lot of snowy themed things going on, but no actual snow. (laughs) Right. It's like Christmas in Hawaii. Yeah, exactly. The waltz of the tumbleweeds. <laughs> waltz of the tumbleweeds or waltz of the fog. That would have been great. Yeah. Yeah, Robin is phenomenal. They're, I mean, I, I consider them a friend. And they um, really, just knowing the, the people involved and knowing what how they shifted their company model as well during um, the troubled times, that really they consider filmmaking and screen dance making as a part of their season and as a part of their company's activities now. And they have a very close relationship with Ben Tarquin, who um, who filmed the piece. And actually, fun fact, um, because of this piece, uh, Robin and two dancers, um, Jenna Marie Graves and Cora Clyburn, were actually invited to be on Blind Spotting, the HBO series. Ooh. So... Yeah, David Diggs, I think it was No, Lil no, it was Lil Buck. Lil Buck saw this video, which did go which went viral, and then invited Robin and company to be in a dance sequence on the show. I'm so glad you brought up Lil Buck because I am now officially adding that to our list and our notes is Lil Buck with icons of modern art because don't tell me that's not ballet. It's it's a bit of a hybrid, oh especially with the voiceover and the context at the beginning. Yeah. Well, as much as we want to talk about all of our favorite short screen dances that feature ballet, we do have an act two planned. So why don't we take our reverence, stand up, take a stretch, and we will come back for act two, where we'll talk about ballet as propaganda. Ballet on screen... Um, usually is an entry point for a lot of people who may be interested in dance or may be interested in seeing dance. But ballet on screen has also been used as a tool, as, as Jen mentioned earlier, as a tool beyond entertainment. And that could not be more relevant, um, especially during this time um, 
where there's a lot of tumult in the Caucasus and tumult in sort of the Eurasian areas of the world. Now, it's no surprise that if you think about a country in ballet, well, obviously different countries have their own different practices. You have, you know, Italian Schicchetti, you have the you know, the Bourneville in, in Denmark, you have uh, different types of practices. But if you're thinking about a particular country, you're probably thinking Russia. Tying back to Laurentia, Ben Estabrook was specifically referencing uh, Soviet styles of performance capture and specific styles that where ballet was put on a soundstage and the camera was very mobile. But this was also a style that was amenable to eyes that were outside of the borders of the then very cloistered Soviet Union. Now, if anyone had any sense of what was going on, they either had the day-to-day, very, very tense political situation, or they usually had what was then one of very few cultural exports from Russia, the ballet. Now, I don't know, did either of you watch Children of Theater Street growing up at all? I don't recall. Okay. So Children of Theater Street was a documentary about the Vaganova School in about 1977. I should have seen it. I studied Vaganova. Why didn't I see this? Yeah, I mean, and Grace Kelly narrated it. And I mean, basically, it, it was one of the few views that you got into what Soviet life was like. And that's similar to what you'd see with other countries that may have a bit of a closed communication. Um Again, when it comes to Cuba, very, very tense political situation. But if you see a cultural export, it's probably the Cuban National Ballet, which toured and still tours an insane amount. And of course, China as well, which we'll talk about each of these countries a little bit. But before we dive into each one specifically, I want to ask you to what your opinion is on why ballet. For me, I think it's because... You know, now we know ballet is much more expanded and as various contemporary forms and experimentations on it, even going to the point where we see uh, Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, which is an entirely drag ballet, you know, so that's completely the opposite of the tradition. But in my opinion, and probably, I don't know, I don't think this is a very controversial opinion, ballet stereotypically is all about order and lines and perfection. Even the roots were in the royal courts and all this precision. And it is seen as a high art. And I think it's a way of showing that things are in order and that some sort of artistic harmony and athletic virtuosity will reflect that the country itself not only has the soft, artistic, the expressive, emotional side and taking care of, but it's also got this hardcore physical strength as well i think a lot of people are so drawn to it it are those things the discipline the lines the amount of work that an effort that is put into it but i would also say that i mean ballet has always been known as a high art and people feel fancy when they go to the ballet And they want to go to those events to feel cultured and see dance in that kind of form. I think those are the main reasons. 
that people tend to gravitate towards ballet. I think also ballet is, as I've said before, it's that fascination with it. People don't understand it. They would go to a modern performance, I think, and really don't understand it. Yeah, narrative tends to help the mainstream, Mm -hmm. the lay folk. (laughs) Yes. So I think ballet is one of the easier sides of understanding dance because of that nature. And it's also the most covered kind of dance form in all of dance. People know what ballet is. It's been around for centuries. They watch something on So You Think You Can Dance, World of Dance, or any of those things. But it doesn't resonate the same. Yeah, ballet is like the colonialist dance. Mm-hmm. For sure. It's the one, it's almost like the Christianity of the dance world. It's managed to expand to so many countries and have such an established uh, route that it, for many people, it's like a mainstream uh, existence in a way. Absolutely. Well, it's also like that with their classes as well. You could be anywhere and you already know what to expect when you walk into a ballet class. You start at the bar. It's the same. It's kind of like a math class, too. You like it's again. Yeah, exactly. The universal Christianity of dance. Yeah. And it's I think that's something when it comes to ballet. And yeah, both of you just nailed it um, as as far as just having just a universal um, something that's universally recognized as a moving art that's also really showing the feats of human physicality. And I think when it comes to a lot of these countries who maybe have more complicated political situations, a lot of those who are in, who are even in the school in the first place, that's usually the fast track to a better life. And because of that, the nature of the training is insanely competitive. And as a result, the quality ends up, or the quality of what we see ends up being spectacular. Like I remember watching comparisons between, I think it was the Kirov and ABT doing Les Sylphides. And you, I mean, it wasn't even a question. It the, the ballet, the Kirov completely embodied the work, but there's always this underlying theme. It was really out of necessity and out of survival. You literally eat. Well, I mean, you don't eat. You sleep and breathe and, you know, I guess eat whatever keeps you alive for this art, for a better life. Yeah, and it's really a testament to the human spirit and the willingness to persevere because in most of these cases – not only is the result of what we see, um, you know, far greater in quality and also quite tragic and heartbreaking when you do take that empathetic approach that understands how you get there. These dancers are also training in facilities that are nowhere near what we have. I, I'll just speak for the U.S. because I've, I've lived here now. But, you know, what we have in, in the United States, even for a lot of just regular dance studios for children that are not even trained to be professionals that are only competing um it's amazing that some of these countries ballet is this huge cultural export and the results we see even if the facilities are not there um i actually went to cuba about 
15 years ago. So this was before, um, this was back when I lived in Canada. And we took class at the National Ballet in Havana. Um, we also took, we took ballet, but we also took salsa. It was very fun. Um, <laughs> oh, nice. Like teenage me loved dancing with all the Cuban people. It was super fun. I mean, me now would still love it, but teenage me was like, what? <laughs> um, but it was really shocking that we're in this amazing facility, this world-class ballet company, yet we brought like used tights and leotards and hairnets, just these typical items here. Ballet is this huge cultural export for them, yet they can't get these basic imports that are largely available worldwide. Um, it's really kind of a heartbreaking perspective to think about the irony there between the product turned out and what needs to be done to achieve it. Yeah. I mean, I think the figure, I knew someone who used to dance with the company and I think the figure that they gave, um, as far as like a monthly salary for dancers in the company itself would be equivalent to around $25 a month, which I mean, for that level of work and the level of, I mean, forgive me, product that you're getting just insane. Actually, uh, we got we have to mention Mao's Last Dancer here as well because that is a great example um, and a great mainstream. You know, not that the Oscars are the pinnacle of success in film and everyone seeing it, but it's a good measure of like something being mainstream and widely known. Um, and Mao's Last Dancer, from my memory, cleaned up the year that it was in the in the running for the Academy Awards. Yeah. Uh, oh, another one I want to mention. Um, a bit more of a flawed movie, but still has some very admirable qualities, is White Crow. Um, specifically because it does focus on Nureyev and the moment that he defected. And just, it it can be easy sometimes to think, okay, if you're a dancer who's leaving another country to start another life, oh, you're just going to miss your flight. And then that's okay. But this movie, I think, does a great job of showing like what the stakes were, not only on his life, but his family's life if he were to leave the country. And I think this is the great gift of film and of media because it actually allows us to not be there in person, but try and get as close as we can to it and try and tell these stories and offer perspective because the reality is ballet is different everywhere else in the world. I mean, we we even forgot to mention um, Invisible Point, Tanin Tarabi. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and seeing seeing ballet in a setting outside um, where the technique is at a different level, the wardrobe is different, but when you learn the context, it's fascinating. She had to go to another country to learn dance. And that's really the wonderful thing about being able to have access to all these films. And we've even just the list that we've compiled for this episode is just scratching the surface. What we really wanted to do today was introduce an episode series where we can talk about specific genres. And clearly, there's so much to unearth there. Yeah, there's so much to dig. Um, I mean, you, I don't think you can plea deep enough to get to the bottom of all the signifiers of ballet on film. Um, and yeah, it's going to take probably several episodes to to really, really get into the weeds. But um but hopefully this is a great overview of the ways that you do see ballet on film and how ballet on film is used. Well, I don't know if it's just in my head, but I think I can hear some music uh, indicating that it's time for us to take our final bow for this episode. Our reverence. It's time for the finale. So everyone that listened, thank you so much. Let us know in the comments. Send us an email. Let us know any films that we missed, anything you want to cover. And... 
what our next genre of dance should be. Today was ballet in focus. What should be next? Hannah, Claire, thank you again for what's always an entertaining and mind-massaging conversation. Spasiba. Curtsy. If you loved this episode, you'll probably love an upcoming special program co-presented by Dance Cinema and the Go Ballet. The Nutcracker is the brass ring of the ballet world, what dancers everywhere seek to grasp on their way to the top. In the reality of a dream, five teen hopefuls prepare to participate in the biggest performance of the year, guided by prima ballerina Chan Han Go, their mentor at Canada's world-renowned Go Ballet Academy. This thrilling documentary goes behind the scenes to show what it takes to be extraordinary. The Reality of a Dream will be available on demand at Dance Cinema Online from November 1st to December 31st. Happy Nutcracker season! <laughs>